In reverence for the word of God, I invite you to please stand with me and open your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. For the choir director, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Pray with me. Our great God and Father, we bow humbly and reverently and joyfully in your presence. And as we have just read, we recognize that you are among us, that you are here, that you are, in fact, everywhere. 
that you know everything about us. You have searched us through and through. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know every time that we sit. You know every time that we rise. You know every thought. You know our path. You know when we lie down. You know all of our ways. You even know the words that we will say before we speak them. There is nothing that you do not know, O God. And as we think about this knowledge that you possess, as David said, it is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain to it. We cannot grasp as finite creatures a being like yourself who has omniscience. Father, we also recognize that there is nowhere that we can flee from your presence. There is nowhere that we can go in the world that you have made that we can escape your all-seeing eye and your presence. Even if we are in the darkest of nights, you see us, you know what we do, you know our thoughts, you know our words. You are the very God who formed us in our mother's womb. Father, we thank you that we are your creatures. We thank you for how you made us so skillfully, so wonderfully. Your works of creation are indeed wonderful. And Father, we also thank you that all of the days of our life, before we were ever even born, they were ordained by your sovereign plan. Father, your thoughts to us are so vast, so numerous, and so precious. We thank you that as you know everything about us, that you still love us, that you still care, that you still provide, that you are still compassionate and full of mercy and pity, and that you remain faithful. Even when you know what we do in secret, even when you know our motives are not right. And so, Father, we pray with David that you would search us, that you would know our hearts, that you would try us and know our thoughts. May you expose any hurtful way, any harmful way within us, any, any sin that is not being dealt with, any selfish motive that is not being crucified. Lord, please bring to our attention anything within us that is offensive and grievous to you. Father, we thank you for David's zeal for you, as expressed at the end of the psalm, that he even viewed those who hate you as his very enemies. Father, it is with that same kind of love and zeal with which we come to you today. We love you. And in a very holy and righteous sense, we hate those who hate you, O oh Lord. But we also recognize that we were once among those who hated you. And that the only reason why we are among those who love you now is by the good work of grace that you have wrought in our hearts. 
And so we don't look upon our enemies with pride and with arrogance, but with a holy hatred and with also humility before you and a desire for their conversion. Father, I pray that you would take this psalm, may you seal its truths upon our hearts. May we be deeply aware that we are now as always in your presence, that we live before you. Our lives are completely open and laid bare before your gaze. And may we as your children find assurance that no matter where we are, even there your hand will lead us and your right hand will lay hold of us. And may we strive to do all that we do for your pleasure and for your glory, even in this sacred hour as we gather for corporate worship. And we ask and we pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It is with a deep sense of anticipation that I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we begin a new mini-series in this great epistle. We're calling it the Divine Mandate for Expository Preaching, part 1, and our text will be simply verse 1 of chapter 4, but I do want to read verses 1 through 8. This is a complete unit of thought. So follow along as I read the Word of God. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. For the past seven months, it has been our privilege to study the Apostle Paul's final letter in the New Testament. And this morning it is our privilege to embark upon the final chapter of the final letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul, wherein he gives a final charge to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. As one commentator has put it, Paul's final charge to Timothy is, quote, the grand climax of the epistle. And he is right. In this final letter, Paul has given many commands. He has given many instructions to Timothy. But now he concludes with one final climactic charge, which really is the culmination of everything that he has written thus far 
in this epistle. Now let me sort of give you the lay of the land here of chapter 4. The final charge is given in verses 1 through 8. That is the text that I just read. That is followed by some final personal instructions in verses 9 through 18. Paul then gives various greetings in verses 19 through 21. And then Paul concludes with a final farewell in verse 22. And now as we begin to sharpen our focus upon Paul's final charge to Timothy... There are nine imperatives in verses 1 through 5. That is to say, Paul is not providing Timothy with nice platitudes or merely giving him suggestions or good ideas about ministry, but rather he is writing with a very commanding tone. He is writing as an apostle bearing the very authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this charge doesn't represent what Timothy might do or even what he should do, but what he must do as a minister of the gospel under the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now five of the two commands, or five of the commands rather, are given in verse 2, and four of them are given in verse 5. And they are given in very rapid fire succession, one right after the other. But the one primary command, the one overarching command, is the very first command that is given in verse 2, preach the word. And therein, and that command defines the very essence of the final charge by Paul to Timothy. Timothy, if you are to do anything in your ministry, it must be this. You must preach the word. As one who has been called by God into Christian ministry, you are above all else a preacher. You will notice that not only does Paul tell Timothy what he must do, namely he must preach, he also tells him what he must preach, namely the word. Timothy must commit himself to the work of preaching, but he is not at liberty to preach whatever he wants because the content of his preaching must be confined, determined, defined by the word of God. For this reason, I have titled the series of messages The Divine Mandate for Expository Preaching, because that is exactly what we have in this wonderful text. John Stott refers to this passage as, quote, Paul's legacy to the church. And that is a very, very correct statement. This final charge profoundly shaped Timothy's ministry. It has profoundly shaped the ministry of every faithful man of God in the history of the church beyond Timothy. And personally, I cannot express to you how significant this passage has been in my own life, in my own ministry. I am deeply, deeply indebted to this text. So while Paul wrote this directly to Timothy, it applies to every preacher in every age, in every place, in every church, in every circumstance. It is what defines faithful Christian ministry, but further it has application to anyone who teaches the word of God in any capacity. 
And even further, it has application for every believer because it informs every local church of what the divine mandate is concerning the minister's charge as a pastor. In other words, churches are responsible before God to hold their pastors accountable to the divine mandate to preach the word. As the church of God, which you are, expect nothing less than the preaching of God's word. Now, before we move into our text, let me remind you of the context. Paul ended chapter 3 with a very strong emphasis upon Scripture. As we saw, he affirmed two vital truths about Scripture, namely its inspiration and its sufficiency. He affirmed that the Bible has a divine origin, that it is God-breathed, that it comes from God, and that it is sufficient for salvation and sanctification. It is especially noteworthy that Paul presents the Scripture as sufficient for ministry in verses 16 and 17. Then immediately upon the heels of these marvelous affirmations about the Scripture, Paul moves into the command to preach the Word. And this, beloved, establishes a very important principle for us to lay hold of, and that is this. The nature of the Bible determines the nature of preaching. Let me say that again. The nature of the Bible, what the Bible is, determines the nature of preaching. Since the Bible is God-breathed, And since it is sufficient for all things pertaining to spiritual reality, for all things regarding life and godliness, it must be preached. A person's doctrine of Scripture shapes a person's understanding of preaching. If a person has a high view of Scripture, then they will also have a very high view of preaching. If you truly believe that the Bible is the God-breathed, sufficient word of God, then you will also believe that it must be proclaimed and expounded to the people of God. Now, I listen to many sermons every week, and I can tell you what a preacher really believes about the Bible by how he preaches. It doesn't take very long to discern that. When a preacher truly affirms that the Bible is inspired and that it is sufficient, He will preach the Word of God. If he doesn't preach the Word of God, that reveals a very inadequate low view of the Scripture. J.I. Packer said it very well when he said this, The preacher's aim will be to stand under Scripture, not over it, and to allow it to talk through him, delivering what is not so much his message as its message. Scripture itself must do all the talking, and the preacher's task is simply to set the Bible in motion, end quote. And that is really, by the grace of God, what I endeavor to do with you week after week, is to simply set the Bible in motion and to allow it to speak, as it were, through me, and for me to really just decrease. I don't want you to see me. I don't want you to remember me. I don't want you to think of me. I want you to think of the text. I want you to think of the Word of God I want you to think of God himself. That is the role of the preacher. Now with that said, 
As I've already alluded, this text that is before us is absolutely loaded with truth. It is so profound, so rich, so wide, so deep, so high. And I am confident that the Lord is going to teach us much as we study together this great portion of the Word of God. Now in this passage we have a number of principles for faithful preaching. And we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the first principle for faithful preaching, Roman numeral 1, on your sermon notes page, that is the solemnity of preaching, verse 1, something that is absolutely vital to understand in terms of preaching. The solemnity of preaching. Look at verse 1. I solemnly charge you. Before Paul actually gives the charge in verse 2, he reminds Timothy of how serious it is to preach the word of God. I solemnly charge you as Paul's direct, personal, emphatic appeal to Timothy. This charge bears the full weight of Paul's apostolic authority. And it demonstrates that preaching is a very serious, solemn, and weighty responsibility. I concur with John MacArthur who says those who are called to proclaim and interpret the word of God have the most profound responsibility that the Lord places on any man, end quote. What a profound responsibility it is to stand before the people and to speak for God, to interpret his word, to proclaim his word to men. So the first principle for preaching that Paul gives to Timothy and to us is that it is a solemn task. It is a solemn task. Preaching is not to be cute It is not to be trite. It is not something to be taken lightly. The pulpit is not the place for comedy. It is not the place for entertainment. Preaching must be viewed with a high sense of solemnity. The verb Paul uses here, solemnly charge, I solemnly charge you, it has a legal nuance. And so when you think of this term, you need to think of it in a legal sense. It is the idea of taking an oath in a court of law. In this context, Paul solemnly charges Timothy in the court of God and places him under oath before the divine tribunal. It is extremely weighty, extremely solemn. He says in verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. What a profound statement. Paul not only reminds Timothy of the solemnity of preaching, but he also provides him with a God-centered motive in preaching. And this is so crucial. So crucial. When a man preaches, it is obvious that he preaches to people. He doesn't preach to pews. He doesn't preach to a building. He doesn't preach to an empty room. He preaches to people. But while he preaches to people at the same time, he must recognize that he preaches for God. For God. In other words, when 
the preacher preaches, there are always two audiences that he must keep in view, with the first and primary audience being God himself. God himself. When I preach, I preach for you, I preach for your good, I preach for the benefit of your soul, for your well-being, for your edification, for your growth in Christ. But listen, I also preach for God. For God. God, my Father. Timothy, when you preach, Paul says, the congregation is listening to you. But more importantly, God is listening to you. And listen, God does not miss a single word that you say. Not one. The congregation may become distracted at times. That's invariable. They may tune in. They may tune out. Some of what you say may go unheard. It may go unnoticed by people. But God never misses a single word that you say. And he never forgets what you preach. You may forget what I preached last month. I may forget what I preached last month. But God doesn't forget. He hears it all. He knows it all. He remembers it all. And this provides the proper motivation in preaching. One commentator said, in a day filled with those who preach for the applause of man, we need faithful preachers who preach for the pleasure of God. That is a great statement. I am endeavoring at this very moment to preach for the pleasure of God, for the honor of God, for the joy of God, for the delight of God, for the praise of God, for the worship of God, for the exaltation of his great and majestic name. Let me be very personal. I love you. I love you deeply. I pray for you. I study with you in mind. I think about individual faces and families and souls and needs as I prepare and as I study, as I prepare for the Lord's day. I love to preach to you. But when I preach, what I am doing more than anything else is worshiping God. That is what exceeds everything else. It is the worship of God. When I preach, it is part of my act of worship to God. I'm never more alive than when I preach because I am never more aware of the presence of God than when I preach. So preaching in the presence of God should prompt worship in the heart of the preacher but it should also prompt and produce a holy fear. Do you realize it is a fearful thing to preach? It is a fearful thing to preach. And by that I don't mean the fear of man, but the fear of God. James 3.1, familiar verse, Let not many of you become teachers. What a strange thing to say. We might think James would say, we need more teachers. Let's recruit more teachers. No, he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. 
You step into the responsibility of teaching in any capacity, teaching the word of God in any capacity. You have just invited upon your life a stricter judgment from God. And beloved, that is a fearful thing. When you take upon yourself the responsibility to teach the word of God, it is a fearful endeavor. It is one that you should come into with fear and trembling before God. God will hold the preacher responsible for what he preaches. And that drives me to my knees in prayer. It drives me to my study to do everything I can to rightly divide the word of truth with the help of God. Hebrews 13, 14 is similar to James 3, 1. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That verse is often in my mind as I think about my responsibilities as a pastor teacher. I will give an account. One day I will stand before God and I will have to give an account of this Lord's day, of what I have said to you. If a preacher fails to preach God's truth, if he twists God's truth, listen, he commits ministerial malpractice for which he will give an account to God. My greatest fear in preaching is to misrepresent what the Lord has said in his word. That that is a deep, deep fear. In fact, I have a recurring nightmare, and I'm not being silly. I'm not saying this in jest. There is, I don't have very many nightmares, but there is a recurring nightmare that I have, and the nightmare goes like this. I'm sitting in a church service. It's usually in a building that I'm not familiar with. I'm sitting among people. I don't even know who they are. The worship service is going, and I'm supposed to preach, and I am not ready. I've not studied, I don't have any notes, I'm not prepared, and yet the music is playing, the clock is ticking, it is time for me to preach, and then I wake up petrified. And that dream, I believe, comes from this fear that I have of misrepresenting God and his word. I never, ever, 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 ever want to stand before you at any time in any place and teach the word of God and misrepresent what he says. I never want to say, thus saith the Lord, and that is not what God has said. And that is what drives me to study, to study, to study, to study hours upon hours for one little 45 to 50 minute message to make sure that what I say is in fact what God has said because of my fear of God and my desire to please him. And rightly represent him. John Knox, the great reformer of Scotland, you may know this about him, but he locked himself in his room and he wept at the prospect of preaching because he understood that it was such a solemn task, a fearful thing to represent God. When you understand to whom you are answerable, it makes all the difference. In preaching, there must be a very God-centered motive, a very God-centered focus. The proper motivation is to please God. It is not to please man. The preacher must never enter the pulpit with the ambition of pleasing the people over against pleasing God. That is not an act of worship. That is not the right way of preaching. 
If the preacher's ambition is to be a man-pleaser in his preaching, then he will end up telling the people what he thinks they want to hear instead of telling them what God says they need to hear. If you love God and you love his word, you love his truth, the last thing you want is a man-pleaser in the pulpit. To be a man-pleaser in the pulpit is to desire the approval of man more than the approval of God. It is to prefer the smile of man over the smile of God. It is to fear the displeasure of man more than the displeasure of God. This is greatly illustrated by one of the English reformers, Hugh Latimer. On one occasion, he was preaching in the presence of the King of England. Imagine what that would be like to preach with such a man in your audience, your own king, King Henry VIII, King of England. Before Latimer began to preach, he spoke to himself. He had to talk to himself, and he said this to himself. Latimer, Latimer, thou art going to speak before the high and mighty king, Henry VIII, who is able, if he thinks fit, to take thy life away. Be careful what thou sayest. I think I would be careful if I'm sitting or preaching before the king who could take my life if he doesn't like what I say. That's certainly going to cross your mind. And so Latimer is reminding himself of that and to be careful what you say. But then he goes on to say this to himself. But Latimer, Latimer, remember also thou art about to speak before the king of kings and lord of lords. Take heed. Thou does not displease him. In other words... There was a greater sense of fear that Latimer had of displeasing God when he preached than the king of England. That is the right perspective. When the preacher preaches, he must preach with the awareness that he is preaching in the very presence of God and that his desire must be to please God in his preaching. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul makes a statement that is often overlooked and neglected, but I believe it is so important for what we are talking about today. It is what every preacher should be able to say, Paul says, for we are not like many. Notice that we're not like many. Peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. You know what marks the ministry of Paul that he preached, he conducted his ministry as if he were in the presence of God because he was in the presence of God. Well, there's more in our text in 2 Timothy 4.1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. What a statement. The preacher not only preaches in the presence of God the Father, but also in the presence of Christ Jesus. The Father and the Son observe all that Timothy does, especially when he preaches. They are the audience, as it were. And in the rest of verse 1, Paul sets before Timothy certain works of Christ in order to further move him to understand the solemnity of preaching. Look at verse 1. Speaking of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So weighty. Paul sets before Timothy Christ as the coming judge. Do you realize 
that all of history is moving relentlessly to this moment when Christ will judge the entire world. Every man, woman, boy, and girl, no matter what they look like, no matter what their lot in life was, no matter what their social standing, no matter what their religion They will stand before Christ in judgment. No one will escape his judgment. We will all be summoned to appear before him. The living and the dead. The living are those who will be alive at the time of Christ's return and subsequent judgment. And the dead are those who have already died by that time. They will be raised from the dead and they will be summoned to stand before Christ in judgment. Now, for believers like Timothy and like us, it is important to point out that this judgment in the future will not involve condemnation, that is, condemnation of believers, of the disciples of Jesus. Christ will judge us, there is no doubt, but he will not judge us in the sense of deciding to condemn us, to send us to hell, but rather he will judge us in the sense of evaluating our works in view of reward. Now to expand this, I want to turn for a moment away from 2 Timothy 4 to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because this is exactly what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's speaking about the Christian and his service to God, especially those who are ministers of the gospel and how they are to conduct their ministry in light of Standing before the judgment of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another man is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. You notice that language? You must be careful how you build. That is the metaphor of ministry here. You must be careful for how you conduct yourself in ministry. You must be careful how you build. Verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Verse 12, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day. What day? The day of judgment. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So we're talking about believers who will stand before Christ in judgment, who will not assign them to hell, but he will evaluate their works. What was the quality of your service? What was the quality of your ministry? How did you build your Christian life? It will either be revealed to be gold, silver, precious stones, to be valuable, worthy of reward and praise, or it will be wood, hay, and straw. That is to say it was worthless, and there is the loss of reward. There is the loss of reward. 2 Corinthians The next epistle over, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, that is, whether we are alive in this world or dead, to be pleasing to him. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there is the judgment of God's people before Christ. It is an evaluation of their works, determining whether or not those works were worthy of reward. 
And so in light of that, you only see part of what I do, a very small part of what I do. I only see a very small part of what you do. But the Lord sees all that we do. He sees what we do in secret. He sees the motives. He sees why we do what we do. And he will reward us accordingly. Paul further says in 2 Timothy 4.1, And by his appearing. Sometimes the word appearing can refer to the first coming of Christ. But other times it refers to the second coming as it does here. The context demands it. So again, the thought does not seem to be threatening, but rather in light of reward when Christ returns. The one who died for our sins, the one who rose again, the one who ascended to the right hand of the Father, the one who rules with all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who is coming again to judge the living and the dead, he is the one that you must be mindful of when you preach. When Christ returns to this world, he not only will judge, he will also rule. He is going to judge the living and the dead, and then he will establish his kingdom upon the earth. That is what verse 1 says, and his kingdom. Those are the last words there in verse 1. Christ will return to the world in judgment in order to establish his kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God is a large, complex subject. Not all Christians agree on certain details relative to the kingdom of God. But there is no doubt from this passage that the kingdom of Christ, it is his kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, that it is something that is still future. That is to say, the kingdom will not come until Christ appears in his second coming. This is also evident in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus taught his disciples to pray to the Father, your kingdom come. We are to pray for the kingdom of God to come, which assumes that it's not yet here. Now, I want to take a few moments to expand beyond 2 Timothy 4.1 regarding the kingdom of God. This is going to be a very quick, fast-paced look at the kingdom of God in Scripture. Let's begin in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, and verse 44. You may remember when we looked at the book of Daniel on Sunday nights that there is a lot of emphasis in this book on the kingdom of God. And so we turn to Daniel 2.44. There is a wonderful statement here, a wonderful promise that gives the people of God tremendous hope. Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Throughout the history of the world, there have been certain kingdoms upon the earth that have been very dominant kingdoms, such as the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, the Roman kingdom. All of those are described prior to verse 44 of Daniel 2. But at the end of history, the kingdom of God will be established upon the earth as the final kingdom. 
It is the final kingdom in a series of kingdoms. It will replace all other kingdoms and it will never be destroyed. There will never be another kingdom after this kingdom is established. And so note that it will be an earthly kingdom and it will be an eternal kingdom and it will be a kingdom that is ruled by Christ. Look at Daniel 7. Daniel 7 and verse 13, one of my favorite passages in the book of Daniel. And here we have this tremendous meeting between God the Father and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Daniel 2, 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. And so here is the son of man, Christ approaching the ancient days, who is the father. And he was presented before him, verse 14, and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. What a statement. What an anticipation. What a glorious hope. On Facebook, on my Facebook account, it asks for what your political views are. And I put on mine, conservative, and I also added this, looking forward to the monarchy of Jesus Christ. That's my political view. What is the best form of government? It's not democracy. It is a divine monarchy which will be established by Jesus Christ when he brings the kingdom of God to the earth. Now let's move quickly to Luke chapter 1 and I want you to see in anticipation of what Daniel says, we come to Luke 1 and this is the birth announcement to Mary of Jesus, of the birth of Jesus. And I want you to see what Gabriel, the angel, says to Mary in this dramatic birth announcement. Luke 1, 30 through 33. This is another favorite text of mine. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. What a profound birth announcement. You're going to have a child, it's going to be a boy, name him Jesus, and he will be the everlasting king. He will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And then when Jesus began his public ministry, this is some 30 years after this birth announcement, what did Jesus say? What did he preach? He would say this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same kingdom of Daniel, the same kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament, that was anticipated by the Old Testament writers, So listen carefully at this point. When Christ came in his first coming, he inaugurated the kingdom of God on the earth. In Matthew 12 and verse 28, when Jesus has performed a miracle and the Pharisees who are the opponents are objecting to what he has done, listen to what he says in Matthew 12, 28. They accuse him of casting out demons by the devil's power. He says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
If I am the Messiah, if I am the anointed one of the Spirit and I cast out demons by the Spirit, then guess what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. The same kingdom that is prophesied in the book of Daniel. As Christians, we are right now a part of the kingdom of God. Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So there is a sense in which the kingdom of God has already begun to be established in the world, listen, in a spiritual sense, in the church. But the Bible also presents the kingdom of God as something that is still future, that will not be fully established until the second coming of Christ. I give you 2 Timothy 4.1. He's coming back in judgment, his second appearing in his kingdom. It's all a future orientation. Revelation 11.15 summarizes this dramatic change of kingdoms. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of the world will be replaced by the kingdom of Christ in the future. And he will reign forever and ever. In the book of Revelation in chapter 19, Christ returns to the earth in judgment. And then in Revelation 20, 21, and 22, the final three chapters, he sets up the literal physical kingdom of God upon the earth, which comes, as I understand it, in two phases. In chapter 20, you have the thousand-year reign of Christ, followed by the eternal state in Revelation 21 and 22. And so a, a common way of describing what I am attempting to teach you today about the kingdom of God is that it is already but not yet. There is an already element to it, but there is also the not yet element to it. It is already present in a spiritual sense in the church, but the fullness of the kingdom is yet future. Now, back to 2 Timothy 4.1. It is in light of the future judgment the future return and the future rule and kingdom of Christ that Timothy must preach the word. Timothy preached the word because God the Father and Christ are watching you because Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom in the world. This is to move Timothy to understand properly the solemnity of preaching. John Piper captures, I believe, the sense of what Paul is saying very well. He says, Preacher, keep this in mind. You herald the word of the coming king of the universe. For now he may seem distant because he does not appear. But I am telling you to preach, knowing, never forgetting, he will appear. And when he does, he will be king, and his kingdom will be openly established. And all the truth you have ever proclaimed will be vindicated. And all those who have turned away with itching ears will be put to shame. So what I teach is mocked by the world. It will be vindicated when Christ comes back. And those with itching ears who turn away from the truth to myths, they'll be brought to shame for what they've done to the word of Christ. 
And so, beloved, the first principle for faithful preaching that we have seen this morning is the solemnity of preaching. I don't know how Paul could have stated it any more weighty than he does in verse 1. Now, I want to conclude with a quote from Ray Pritchard. This is included on your sermon notes page. You can follow along as I read. For the preacher, these are awesome words because they tell us that God pays attention to what happens in the pulpit. Every pastor stands in the very presence of God as he delivers his message to his people. Someday he will give an account for what he has said week by week, sermon by sermon. There is a real sense in which the preacher has an audience of one God. He first must preach so that the Lord is pleased with his message. If the Lord is pleased, it matters not what men say. If the Lord is not pleased, the applause of millions will make no difference. What a statement. Our Father in heaven, we are in your very presence. And you have heard everything that I have said. You know my motives. You know everything that has occurred in this place, every thought. And Father, as we are aware of your presence, we desire for you to be pleased that our worship would be done in such a way for your pleasure that we would never be moved by the applause of men, that we wouldn't sing for the praise of men, that we wouldn't teach or do anything in a public way in the name of worship, in the name of serving you, for the praise of men. Father, it is our desire to please you We thank you for your son. We thank you, O Lord, that one day he will return in judgment and that he will condemn all unbelievers and that for the church, for all of your people, we will be evaluated according to what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. And we will either receive reward or loss of reward. And Father, as we anticipate that and as we anticipate the kingdom of Christ being established in this world, in its fullness, that prompts a tremendous joy and anticipation of what is to come, but also a holy fear. Father, I pray that we would live in the reality of these things, that we would live in the reality that we are always in your presence. And always in the presence of Christ and the Spirit. And that we would endeavor by your grace to always live for your glory, for your honor, for your pleasure. That we would be faithful as your stewards, as your servants. And that what we, will, that what we do in this life will be met with your praise in the judgment that is to come. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time together. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.